Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Russ Roberts. He's an economist, a research fellow at Stanford University, an author, and a podcaster. Economics promised us a model which works for all of life's decisions, from what to buy for lunch to investing in a company. But when you're faced with decisions like where to live, how many children to have, whether to get married, or what sort of person you want to be, it falls short. Thankfully, Russ has a new toolkit. Expect to learn why Charles Darwin made a checklist before marriage which said his wife was slightly better than a dog, why the decision about whether to have children is so difficult to predict, whether rationality is totally incompatible with the decisions that define us, why happiness is overrated as an optimizing function, whether tradition is any use at all, and much more. I really, really enjoyed this episode. Russ is a cool guy. I like people who have been through the ringer of the utilitarian, hyper-rationalist, economics expected value calculation approach and come out the other side with genuine wisdom and ease and grace. And Russ is an absolute baller. You're going to enjoy this one. But now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Russ Roberts. Russ Roberts, welcome to the show. Great to be with you, Chris. As an economist, how do they typically assess decision-making in humans? What's the framework that an economist looks at decisions through? Well, the framework is one that I've often advocated for in my youth when I was less wise, I suppose. But this, it's a pretty uh, standard framework, and it makes a lot of sense. It's that you have a finite amount of money, you have a finite amount of time, and you have infinite wants. You have all the stuff that you enjoy and you'd like more of everything, but you can't have all you want. You can't always get what you want. And that's because you don't have an infinite amount of money. So the goal of life is to get the most out of it. And the way we do that is we, we balance off the pleasure we get from this good versus the pleasure we get from that good. And we pick how much we want to consume of these goods and services based on our limited resources. And it's a formal maximization problem. It's a calculus problem. The goal is to accumulate as much pleasure as possible. And pleasure doesn't just mean uh, days at the beach and, and gluttonous meals. It, it includes subtle satisfactions as well in the hands of a skilled economist. Uh, but the goal in life is to, is to be happy where happiness can have some real texture to it uh, if we're thoughtful about it. You said that that was something you used when you were younger. Why has that framework been eroded over time? Uh, it has trouble dealing with some of the things that I've come to think are quite important. It struggles, and I should add as a footnote before I start, that there are probably a handful of economists who wouldn't struggle to include these things. I'm talking about the average economist uh, and the average person who's who's drunk the economist Kool-Aid and has... Uh, use these techniques for, for, their, for their own lives. Let's talk about what's missing from that. One of the things that's missing is other people. Now, in my earlier work as a scholarly academic, uh, I tried to build models of charity. And obviously there are parts of charitable giving where you get pleasure from it. And that fits very nicely into the economist toolkit. Uh, it, it implies things like uh, if you make charity tax deductible, if it, and it wasn't before, people give more because you've lowered the price of giving money to someone else. It's a bit sterile, right? It's a bit sterile, but it can be fitted to the framework. But what about my wife? How should I think about my wife's happiness? Is my wife's happiness something that makes me happy? If I am kind to her, is that do I do that because I enjoy being nice to her because then she'll be nice to me? Is it all about keeping score? which is sort of the economist's framework. And I'd suggest it's not. Um, a life well lived, a marriage well executed and, and lived is not about keeping score. I shouldn't be thinking about what's in it for me all the time. The economist model is what's in it for me. And you can broaden it to say, well, one of the things that's in it for me is what's in it for you makes me happy. But again, I think that's kind of a little bit sterile. It doesn't really capture the full way we think about, most of us think about being nice to other people. And how about decisions that my wife and I make together? Um, 
how do I think about my happiness, her happiness, the morality of it? Do we take turns? <laughs> um, that's not the right way most people live. Uh, and most importantly, most of the things that really bring deep and abiding satisfaction as opposed to momentary pleasure, most of the things that bring us deep and abiding satisfaction don't fit so well into the model. Dignity, sense of self, autonomy, mattering, that people think and respect you. Th these are things that you can cram them into the economist toolkit, but not very easily. And one of the reasons is that they overlay the entire experience of life, I argue in, the, in my book. It, they're, they're, they give texture to everyday life. And that's it, very different from the texture of, well, that was a good ice cream cone. Should I have a second one? Well, they're five eighty-five dollars a piece. No, I won't. Well, that's a rational economics decision, but the deep, deeper questions of, you know, moral dilemmas, what should I do with my life? Should I get married? Should I have children? These don't fit into the economist toolkit. It's not all about cost benefit analysis on a day to day basis. And so that's where I've kind of uh, parted company in some sense. I think most economists would recognize whether I don't want to be a create a straw person that, you know, economists would say there are some, but Economists would say uh, you should maximize your satisfaction from your marriage, and that means if you can get away without taking out the garbage or doing the dishes, or you can watch the movie you want and force her. Yeah, there are economists who do that. Most economists know that that economics has some limitations in what it applies to, um, and so then the question is, what's left? What what do we do for rational decisions in these tough areas? So that's that's kind of the starting point for for my book. Evolutionary psychology would say the reason that you want to be selfless to other people is for ultimately selfish ends. Reciprocal right. altruism, you would be pushing your own genetic fitness, they will owe you. I learned this amazing insight, which you may be familiar with or may not, about why we feel sympathy for people. So sympathy is investment advice. The reason being that someone that is unbelievably down on their luck will be disproportionately appreciative of even the smallest amount of investment that you give to them. The reason why your heartstrings are pulled when you see a homeless guy in the street who has no shoes and two pence to his name, because you know that two pence to him would be so much, whereas two pence to the millionaire down the road would not. And it is one of the tensions that I think we'll probably talk about is this difference between knowing yourself knowing the world, understanding the principles that things are based upon, and then transcending them, like realizing that the principles and the artistry of life kind of have to flow together in a way where if you look at them through too much of a utilitarian, rationalistic perspective where you've got an expected value uh, outcome proposition on the other side of it, you end up removing the joy of the decision itself because I think integrity and a sense of uh, faith in your own character comes about from making decisions beyond simply a rational framework that you go through. It's something that's emergent. It applies. It, it comes out of you because you wanted to do it, because you have imbibed the right principles that turn you into the sort of person you want to be, as opposed to your desires clashing up against some external framework that you always need to be funneled down. Well, I, I would say a little differently. I, I would say that happiness is one of those things that's best pursued in a roundabout way. Right? If you're going to have a vacation and you say, well, I got to get the most out of my vacation or um, what am I going to do tonight to make myself really happy? And of course, some of those things you have to discover and they're not things you're going to plan. That's the part that you're saying that I agree with very much. This, this idea of emergence. Um, it, it's, it's the irony that some goals are best achieved by not thinking about the goals. And the the other part, though, is that economists, because of their they're not careful because of their their um, commitment to the model. The model is only an idea for trying to understand the complexity of human life. But if you take it a little too seriously, you can put yourself in the following situation. It's an example. It's not in the book. Um, I think it illustrates it nicely. So you invite me over for dinner. And I think, you know, that was really nice of Chris to have us. Let, we, should, we should bring something. Uh, now, you might ask the question of why we would even think of doing that, right? You're, you're having us over for dinner. Why would, I, why would I think of bringing something? I mean, you're giving me a gift. I, this, in a way, negates the gift. But 
there's this cultural norm. Okay. So I, my wife says, I'll just bring a bottle of wine. And I think, you know, I think we're having, it's dinner. It'll probably be some red wine will probably be appropriate. So she suggests a bottle of red wine. And I being the foolish economist say, you know, he might not like wine as much as we do. And instead of bringing him the bottle of wine, I think he's quite, I'm sure he's got wine prepared for the dinner. He's not counting on us. Let's just bring him a $20 bill. So that way he can get the most out of it because the $20 bill can buy the $20. Let's say it's a $20 bottle of wine. He can buy a $20 bottle of wine with if he wants. But if he likes something more than the $20 bill, than the wine, excuse me, if he likes something more than the wine, he could buy that instead. So to give him the, the wine is inefficient. We could produce more happiness for the world by giving him the $20 bill. And most wives, unless they've been married to economists for a long time, go, what the heck are you talking about? What's wrong? Aren't you a human being? There's a norm that you don't bring money to somebody's house. And I'll say as the stupid economist, yeah, but the wine is like money. Even if I do bring the wine, I'm still paying him back something. So at least let's pay him back with something he can it'll get the most out of. But most people go like, well, that's stupid. Why would you do that? That's not gracious. So you might ask a deeper question. Why isn't it gracious? What's the economist missing there? And, and one, we could talk about that for the whole rest of the time, but one of the things the economists are missing is that there's certain expectations that have been set up for a social experience. You know, it'd be like me saying, well, you know, I, in my experience at dinner parties, they work best when people take turns talking and nobody really talks more than say 53% of the time. So I'm just gonna let you know that while you're talking at dinner, I'll be keeping a, a stopwatch to make sure that you don't take more than your fair share. And, and because I'm a good person, I'll be doing that for myself as well. <laughs> oh, these are bad ideas, but they're the reductio ad absurdum of where you end up if you take too seriously this notion of getting the most out of every opportunity. And the Economist Toolkit is quite useful in many settings. I think in the kind of settings we're talking about, it leads to um, social faux pas. And then scaling these problems up to the bigger ones about where to live, about whether or not to marry, how many children to have, how self-centered to be. These are what you've termed as wild problems, which have bigger externalities and last for longer and are more serious. But they kind of run along similar lines that trying to do the expected value calculator for them is going to end up in a, a challenging place. I give a lot of examples of why that's the case. You know, uh, to take your first point, the subtitle of the book is A Guide to the Decisions That Define Us. These decisions about whether to marry, who to marry, whether to have children, where to live, career, what kind of a friend to be, these are decisions that capture who we are. They're much more than just the sum of everyday pleasure and pain that I accumulate through the course of living. And if I only take that perspective, I'm going to miss out on the, the overarching things I mentioned earlier that I think matter, dignity, self-respect, um, a feeling of, of, of being living the way one should live, aspiring, becoming the person you want to become. I think if you only focus on the narrow pleasures and pains, the way the Economist Toolkit Gens really pushes you, you'll miss out on, on some of these bigger things. But of course, the other point is, is that can't really do a rational calculation on becoming a parent when you realize that becoming a parent changes what you care about. So who should you take into account? The you before you have kids or the you after you have kids? And so that's um, that's another piece of it. What should people rely on if they're not using more data in that case? What what else is there? So, so I, the, you know, the narrow definition I give of these wild problems. So these are problems where it's not just you can't do a cost benefit analysis. Uh, you don't have the kind of information you need to make a rational decision. You can't really imagine remotely what it's like to be a parent or a, a spouse, yeah, a little bit with a spouse, but a parent you really can't, uh, what it's like to live in a foreign country, uh, what it's like to live an ethical life. These are things that you learn about as you experience them. You make uh, sacrifices, for example, of day-to-day -day pleasure and, and get something else. Uh, so now what? You know, that's that's great. OK, so you've ruined my day. You know, you, I can't make a rational decision. I don't I can't use an algorithm. I don't have an app on my phone. Uh, what do I do? And, the, you know, I suggest that since these are the decisions that define us, you might want to think about who you want to be. You know, if they define who you are, you, to answer that question, you have to think about who you want to be to figure out who you want to be. You have to give some thought to 
what you care about and what you might care about if you were different, what you might care about if you grew, what you might care about if you reach beyond who you are now to be something maybe better, greater, could be more ambitious, but it could be more ethical. It could be more meaningful or more purposeful. It could be you accomplish something you would otherwise neglect or miss if you focused on the, only on the day-to-day. And I, in the book, I, I spent, I think, a whole paragraph, <laughs> only a paragraph, on the different ways that you might explore those questions. Obviously, uh, many, many books of many, many volumes have been written on who you might want to become. The standard routes for getting there the paragraph version is, well, you could go into therapy because you have trouble actually seeing who you are. You could try religion, which forces you to transcend yourself. You could meditate, which, although it seems self-centered, I think often leads us to be able to stand outside ourselves and observe what uh, triggers us, pushes us. Uh, and you can read great literature, which I think helps us understand the human heart. So those are the routes to go, but my book's not about that. The question then is, okay, so I have to give some thought to where I want to go, but how do I cope with the fact that I can't use my tools? I can't use my cross-benefit analysis. I can't make my pro-con list. And so most the second half of the book is is trying to give people uh, various ideas for how to frame these decisions, you know, to, to recognize that there's no right decision. I, many people find that comforting. We're so obsessed. I got to find not just the right decision, the best decision. I got to find the best outcome. Got to maximize, optimize. Where are the life hacks? Give me, give me the ten best ways to find a spouse. The ten best ways to decide whether to have a child. And they aren't there. So you have to think about what it'd be like to live in a world where you're unmoored from the techniques and tools that you've become accustomed to using. And so some of the book is trying to give you um, ease and, and solace over what I think is a reality. You will make many what are will be called mistakes if you're not careful, but are actually just part of the natural process of living because you can't see the future. So why would you feel guilty that you couldn't make the best decision when you didn't have any data? I mean, that's not a mistake. <laughs> that's life. I fell in love with a concept called release the tiller, which is from mm. Jed, Jed McKenna. And the tiller is the thing that's attached to the rudder on the back of a boat and his argument is that a lot of the time while people try to control their life, they grip the tiller harder and harder. <laughs> yeah, they, they, they grip it with fury. And he says that one of the best ways is to just release the tiller, to just allow yourself to have ease. And I ended up realizing a bunch of situations that people get themselves into, myself first and foremost, one of them being that the more that I try and apply cognitive horsepower to the decisions that I need to make, a lot of the time, the less effective the decisions are, the more painful they are to go through because mm-hmm. I, I put all of the onus somewhere. It's kind of like the paradox of choice. If only, if only, if only I'd had a better model, more more time, more whatever to do the thing, as opposed to realizing that every single person that's listening to this podcast right now, no matter what the challenges are that they came up against, the neuroses, the overthinking, the complete, the, the, the sleepless nights, of not being able to believe that they could get through this thing. If they're listening to this podcast right now, by that fact, it means that they've got through whatever the challenges are. You have however many years or decades that you've been alive of proof that every single challenge that you thought would destroy you or take you to the the edge of destruction and despair has not managed to do it, right? You You are the survival of all of those challenges, and yet, because of negativity bias and loss aversion and all of that sort of stuff, we look to the future still with this same degree of fragility. And mm-hmm. I think that I, I think that the fact that we've got through all of that is super important. Uh, you used as a, a, an illustrative example one of my favorite stories from history, which mm-hmm. is Darwin's marriage and how mm-hmm. he how he went through that. And I've got a little description that I took out of the first book I ever learned about it in, which was The Moral Animal by Robert Wright from 1993. Mm. So in the decade of Darwin's marriage, the 1830s, the number of British couples filing for divorce averaged four per year. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So Darwin... you, that's not in thousands. That's just four. Four. <laughs> four. I mean, the population will be a bit lower, but it's not. It's The yeah. marriage is significantly lower than the population is lower. So 
uh, Darwin, the uh, ever the rationalist and the self-assessor, he was a, a man that seemed to be quite um, troubled with uh, his own motivations. I think he, his degree of analysis and attention and assessment of other creatures also got turned inward on himself too. Uh, and he journaled. He journaled very frequently. So it meant that he has this journal, which we now have access to. And he is trying to make this decision about whether to marry or not. The document has two columns, one labeled marry, one labeled not marry. And above them circled are the words, this is the question. On the pro-marriage side of the equation were children, if it please God, constant companion and friend in old age who will feel interested in one, object to be beloved and played with. After reflection of an unknown length, he modified the foregoing sentence with better than a dog anyhow. He continued, home and someone to take care of the house, charms of music and female chit-chat, these things good for one's health, but terrible loss of time. Without warning, Darwin had, from the pro-marriage column, swerved uncontrollably into major <laughs> anti-marriage factors, so major that he underlined it. This issue, the infringement of marriage on his time, especially his work time, was addressed at greater length in the appropriate not marry column. Not marrying, he wrote, would preserve freedom to go where one likes, choice of society and little of it, conversation of clever men at clubs, not forced to visit relatives and to bend in every trifle, to have the expense and anxiety of children, perhaps quarrelling, loss of time, cannot read in the evening, fatness and idleness, anxiety and responsibility, less money for books, and if many children forced to gain one's bread. What an unbelievable example of somebody trying to use those frameworks <laughs> in order to come up with a big life decision. Yeah, uh, what I suggest, uh, first point, of course, as, as I argue, is that if you look at those two columns, it's pretty clear what the right choice is. Uh, not enough time to read, do your work, and missing the clever conversation in clubs with with men uh and what do you get in return female chit chat and something that's better than a dog anyhow it's thin soup uh it's pretty clear that the right choice for darwin is not to marry and underlying of course all that loss of time i think is his worry that he will not achieve his scientific legacy kafka by the way as as i recount in the book makes a similar list and he decides not to marry which is pretty rational on, based on his list but darwin despite his list, marries. And at the end of, of having made those two columns, he then writes this stream of consciousness paragraph, which is basically, oh my God, I'll be alone in my old age, coming back to a dingy apartment. Marry, marry, marry. And he marries. And he marries, I think about six months later, he marries his cousin. Uh, and he, um, I don't think she was planned as the person in the back of his mind. I think he just went out and found her. Yeah, footnote, fascinating. Um, she would read to him every night, and he actually liked it. So even though he wasn't doing his own reading at night, he did get uh, he did come to like the alternative that he was able to have through marriage. But the question is, what was he thinking there? I mean, in the calm, sober light of day, he totes up the costs and the benefits, and it's pretty clear marriage is a loser. But he marries anyway, and I think you know there's a lot of things you could say about that decision. You know, you could argue social norms kind of pushed him in that direction. I'm sure they did. But I like to think, and it's what, what I expanded on the book, I like to think that he understood there was more at stake than the day-to-day -day pleasures of, and pains of, of married life. Um, there was meaning and there was satisfactions he could only imagine. And he really couldn't imagine because he had no access to them. He surely knew no one articulate about marriage who could explain it to him. He might have read a great novel. He could have read Jane Austen. And maybe if he did, I don't know if he read Austen, but... And I think she'd already written Sens Sensibility, say, or other books by that time. But you didn't really have – who's going to explain it? And think about your own – for those of you out there who are married, how do you explain to someone what's good and bad about marriage? Uh, the bad's pretty clear. Most people, I think, could list what's bad about marriage, like, like Darwin was worried about the downside. He had really no access to the upside. And the same would be true of children. From the outside, children looks like a pretty bad decision. I mean, Really? all the expense and the time and the nuisance and they get sick and they're worried about this, they would die. And, and, and they did. Um, it's hard. And yet most people have children. Is that, is that irrational or is there something else going on there? And I think the, certainly the, until you've had children, your access to the inner life of parenthood is limited. 
Uh, it's not for everybody. It's not like it's a day at the park. It's not. Uh, but it adds a texture to your life that is unattainable and other very difficult to attain, I'd say, in other ways. It adds a meaningfulness and a purposiveness to life. And I think Darwin probably understood that somewhere, even though he didn't write it down. Maybe not. I don't know. How is that similar to the choice about whether or not to become a vampire? So the vampire idea comes from the philosopher uh, L.A. Paul of Yale University in her book, Transformative Experiences, that I riff on in my book. Uh, you know, a vampire, if you talk to vampires, they're really happy. They like flitting about at night and drinking blood and sleeping in a coffin. And those us mere mortals, we look at that and go like, that sounds kind of creepy. I don't think I'd like that. And yet everyone, almost everyone maybe, maybe all of them think it's a great way to live and they look back on their feeble and thin lives as humans with disgust and disdain. So now what do you do? You take the leap. If you do, there's no going back, right? And some decisions in life are literally like that. There's no going back. It's very hard to go back from being a parent. It's very hard to, it's costly to go back from being married, but you can go back and get divorced. If you move to a place you turn out you don't like, you can go back. But Thomas Wolfe said you can't go home again. He was, I think, onto something, right? It's easy to say you can go back, but it's actually quite emotionally complicated. Uh, many decisions in life, and we're talking about a handful of decisions, marriage, children, career, what kind of friend to be is a little bit different. But uh, many of these decisions, they have a uh, irreversibility about them. They're a bit of a one-way leap. It's harder to leap back. You can sometimes, and you can do it sometimes at a cost. Uh, and I argue later that if you know if the cost is relatively small, you should do more leaping. Uh, you can go back. It's okay. Nothing to be ashamed of. I think a lot of times there's a moral, this worry that, oh, I look foolish. I, had to, I changed my mind. Why is that? <laughs> is that embarrassing? It's not. It's okay. You know, it's like saying, I bought a bad, I bought the wrong stereo in the old days. Or, I, bought a, I bought a bad car or I picked a bad college or whatever it is. And it's okay to transfer. It's okay, right? Nothing shameful there, but a lot of times I think we're emotionally very, it's very awkward because we don't want to reveal to other people that, quote, we made a mistake. And, you know, I suggest in the book, it's okay. It's not a mistake, really. There's a topic that I have fallen in love with called anxiety cost. So you'll be familiar with opportunity cost, right? Which is by doing a thing, you can't do another thing. Anxiety cost is the mental effort that is taken up considering the thing that you are yet to do, which could have been gotten rid of by simply doing the thing. So every morning when you wake up, your daily routine starts and you have to meditate and walk the dog and, and do whatever else it is that you do. And the longer that you wait during the day to do that, the more time you spend thinking about having to do it. Whereas had you have done it earlier, you reduce what I've termed anxiety cost nice bro science economist over here and i love that what i realized with regards to the anxiety cost is that closing the loop right getting rid of that zygonic effect wherever you can is a good opportunity on average it seems like people that make decisions end up being happier people enjoy just making decisions and having change so if you are faced with two relatively similar options, especially one which is reversible, and moving, this is one that I've been playing with for a long time because I recently moved to America and I got this visa and it was a big thing and I'm in a country on my own doing this podcast thing and God knows how that's going to go. And yet, I ended up going and doing it and I adored it. I, I adored the decision. I absolutely loved it. I know that you recently made the jump to uh, go to Israel, I think. Yep. yep. Uh, and... I, uh, everything is everything's exciting and new and if i want to move back and even if i messed up even if i messed up and i came back with egg on my face i genuinely think getting back into the economist's thought process that the discomfort of having to admit publicly that i i, I made a go of this and it didn't work out would be less painful than living with the anxiety cost of the what if had i not done it well, I don't totally agree with that. I like the anxiety cost idea. Uh, I think I would have been totally happy if I'd not moved to Israel doing whatever what I was doing before, which was very pleasant. Uh, it's true I would have had that what if, but I would have forgotten about it. I would have pushed it down and, and tried not to dwell on it because it's, it's in the past. Um, you also moved to a country where they speak more or less the same language. <laughs> uh, Israel's a lot harder. They speak Hebrew here. There, there are a number of people who speak English, but... Uh, cultural transition, I think, between the United States and Israel uh, and England and the United States is is trickier. Um, 
I took what you were saying differently and tell me if I'm, I got this wrong. I like this anxiety cost idea because it says you, you need surgery and you can have it now or you can have it in, in six weeks. What do you want? A lot of people would say, oh, I don't want it now. I'll do it in six weeks. And then you have six weeks of torment. Pull the Band-Aid off. Yep. Do it now. Get it done. Now, it's true. You could die. That'd be a negative. And you could have had the six weeks of life in between before the surgery. So th- th- it's a little bit uh, more complicated. But the idea that procrastination is a uh, a, a malaise, a, a, a um, an unhealthy thing, and we justify it by saying, oh, I'll just get more information or in the case of surgery, maybe I'll recover before the surgery. I won't need it at all. Right. We, we have all these stories we, we might tell ourselves to avoid short term pain. Uh, I have a different trick. Uh, see what you think of this one. Uh, I believe armchair psychologist that. Pleasure remains much longer in our memories than pain. So if you go on a great vacation, you're going to savor it uh, and you'll be able to enjoy it for years because you'll be able to look back on it and say, remember that? Oh, that was so much fun. And we did this and and you have the photographs, whereas the root canal, it's over. I don't think about it. I, you say, how bad was that root canal? Oh, my gosh, it was horrible. I had a bad one. I, I've had good ones since, by the way, which I dreaded, but they turned out to be fine. I was wrong to dread them, but I should have dreaded them for the reason I'm saying now, which is like. Really, do, do, do you look back on it and say, oh, it was horrible? No, you don't. You don't even think about it. Uh, and so get through it. Do it now. Do the painful thing now and, and enjoy more of the pleasurable thing. Because the algorithm, you know, the, the I'll get more information about whether I really need the operation. That's a bad trick. That's a that's a false trick. It's not good for you. It's your brain playing a bad, a bad life hack. The opposite of the anxiety cost which you can leverage to have more enjoyment in life is the anticipation effect so you you, tim ferris does this and i I love doing this as well have holidays booked two years three years in advance right because a a big chunk of the enjoyment of the holiday before you get the sand between your toes and the the, you got the cocktail that was blended not not on the rocks (laughs) and it's a bit hotter than you expected is the anticipation of it so you can reverse the anxiety cost with the anticipation effect and what you just said there i think is an example of fading affect bias. The Mm. goodness and badness of memories fade over time, but the badness fades faster. Some bad memories even become good memories, while good memories rarely become bad ones. It makes sense that both joy and pain fade with time. Stuff just feels less intense when it's farther away. But why does pain fade faster? It's because when bad stuff happens to us, our psychological immune systems turn on. We start to rationalize. Why would I want to be with someone who doesn't want to be with me? We downplay. Breakups happen all the time in high school. It's no big deal. We distance. I never liked her that much anyway. And we distract. (laughs) I'm going to go and play video games. These mental processes function like emotional antibodies, taking the sting out of bad memories. We don't use them on good memories, so good memories keep their luster longer. Everything is temporary, bad stuff especially. Tragedy plus time equals comedy is the closest thing psychology has to a chemical equation. Who wrote that? Adam Mastrioni. In? Substack. It's very nice. I'll send you the article. It's It's phenomenal. It's very nice, and it's consistent with what... Uh, Adam Smith says in uh, his theory of moral sentiments, he says, when you have a really horrible trip and think about a horrible trip, you know, for us, a horrible trip is the plane sat on the tarmac for four hours. They didn't let us get off. And then we didn't end up taking off. We had to come back. They lost our bags, blah, 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 blah. Adam Smith got dysentery. Yeah. I don't know what he got (laughs) or his horse, the horse, you know, stepped on his foot. I I don't know what it was. 1759. But, uh, and dysentery's, that's bad. Uh, but Smith says when you have a bad trip, when people are bad to you and things go wrong and are unexpected, he said there's a certain type of person who just who comes and whines about it. They come to other friends. Oh, this was so horrible. You can't believe what happened to me. It was so unfair. Why me? You know, the plane was et cetera, et cetera. And what Smith says is no one sympathizes with you, actually. Uh, one reason being, of course, is because it's a first world problem. Really nothing horrible happens to you in that's in those stories. It's just your expectations get frustrated. And what Smith says, which is very consistent with Adam Estrioni, Smith says, you're better off making a joke out of it. And, you know, some of my brother's best comedy routines, he has many, but some of the best ones are about the trips that go wrong. And it's great advice. You know, I got bit by a cat 
uh, about a week and a half ago, a street cat here in Jerusalem. I, it's a it's a pretty good stand-up routine. At the time, didn't feel like one. You know, I'm watching blood run down my hand. I'm worried about rabies. I'm thinking I'm going to die. By the way, I think I'm outside the window. I think I'm good. I'm going to be okay. But for a bit there, I was kind of anxious. But I didn't tell people about it. You can't believe what happened to me. I can't believe there are all these street cats here. Instead, I tried to make it humorous. And I think that's great advice for life. What about John Stuart Mill? What did you learn about a life well lived from him? So um, this comes from uh, Dan Gilbert, the great uh, Harvard psychologist. He and I don't agree about this, but I, I love the example. So I use it in the book. So Mill said, it's better to be a philosopher unsatisfied than a pig satisfied. And that's a deep question. Is that true? Is that a true statement? Is ignorance bliss? Yeah. Is the unexamined life, life really not worth living? Is a colleague of mine here at Shalem said once to me, I don't know, I know a lot of people with an unexamined life. They seem pretty happy. <laughs> I could argue the opposite. You know, philosophers are kind of morbid and depressed and and so on. Uh, and Dan Gilbert's insight, which I don't agree with, but it's an interesting claim, is that uh, Mill was wrong, he says. The only thing that matters is how much pleasure you have in life. And if you swim in a pool of placid water for 23 hours a day, and for one hour a day, you step out of the pool and go like, that's my whole life. All I'm doing is swimming. I should be ashamed of myself. It's okay. For an hour, you're unhappy. But for 23 hours, you're happy. And the 23 hours that you're happy, you're not thinking about the the philosopher saying that's it, that's all there is to life. And for the one hour you're the philosopher, you're neglecting the pleasure you get from swimming. So all you've got is is how many hours there are. And if there's more hours of swimming than guilt, swim. I think that's wrong. I don't agree. I think um, when you're in the pool, after a while, some of the thrill is gone because you think this is my whole life is swimming, is just enjoying myself merely. And so I think there's a lot more to say about it, I say in the book, but the, um, it's a very interesting way to think about framing how we think about where we want ourselves to be. Just want to have fun. Nothing. Can't really say anything wrong with that. Um, you know, is it really true that a more meaningful life is a better life? I don't know. People seem to think so. A lot of smart people seem to argue so. A lot of signal Pe going on there. Yeah, yeah, could be. Yeah, it's true. Hard to know, but it's worth thinking about. I first heard this as uh, posited as a. a debate between the two great Dans of psychology, Kahneman and Gilbert, yeah. because they stand on opposite sides of the fence with regards to this. I've come to believe that this is temperament dependent. I have some friends who yeah. live in the now, who are much more hedonic than I am, who are much less introspective, they ruminate less, and they would be I don't know whether they would be completely, but they would be more likely to be the person that's happy having the cocktail on the lilo in the pool, right? For me, because of the amount of time that I tend to spend reflecting, introspecting, ruminating, I know that to me, a life well lived is one which in retrospect, I'm glad that I lived. I very much am assessing, reassessing the things that I did. And then my current degree of self-worth is based off the back of that reflection. Whereas somebody else very much may be able to, and this is the question, right? Is ignorance bliss? Now you also get into something similar. I'm very interested. I'm going to see Jordan Peterson tonight in Manchester. He's a good friend. The first time I ever saw him was five years ago in Manchester at the same venue. And someone asked him a question that he used to take questions from Twitter. He does a Q and A at the end. He, he still may do. And um, someone asked him basically the depth of my consciousness causes me to suffer is ignorance bliss. I wish that I could regress back from this. And Jordan's answer basically was, once you have opened that box, once you have seen what is inside, you've peered into the red pill, you've begun to examine the life, there is no going back. And his argument was that the only way out is through. He used this analogy of taking more of the thing that poisons you until you turn it into a tonic that allows you to girdle the world around you. I mean, it's in uh, typically apocalyptic Jordan yeah. Peterson, patriarchal, finger, yeah. <laughs> finger-wagging tone. But I read, and I've, I've kept that with you. That's a five-year-old two-minute monologue that I've kept with me because it's a question I ask myself a lot about, you know, this sort of, bloody hell, would life not be simpler if it was just simpler? Uh, and then on the reverse of that, you think, well, if you can learn to love the process of analysis, there is such deep pleasure that can be got from working out how things link together and knowing that there is a, a bit of a heavy weight 
to bear here. Like I had to do a b- good bit of a lift to get myself around my own encumbered nature. And yet on the other side of it, it's so, it's really, really satisfying. And I thought that that linked in a little bit with Adam, Adam Smith's uh, yeah. example. Well, when you're talking about your friends who are a little more hedonistic than you are, I was thinking, oh yeah, they're, each one of them is as happy as a clown. An expression that we use. It's a very strange expression when you think about it. Can't imagine a clam is that happy, but I think what it means is it's easy to please a clam. Just pleasant in water, you're good. <laughs> and um, I don't know whether it's because I'm a religious person or my cultural upbringing, but I kind of aspire to be more than a clam. I think many do. Nothing wrong with, you know, not, not judging. Life. Yeah, clam life is Great for clams. Uh, and so, as you say, I think it is a temperament. It's partly a temperament issue. Um, uh, your example of, of um, doing the hard work. I think, I think most people who do hard work and find a reward at the end uh, find that meaningful. Um, I think it depends what the reward is. Sometimes it's self-actualization. Sometimes it's the sense of command. Sometimes it's helping others by something you've created with a group of people through a set of sacrifices and hard work. Um, but you know, when I list the things that are deeply meaningful to me, um, most of them aren't in the clam area. You know, I, I've had a lot of fun in my life. I don't look. I'm not a. You know, H.L. Mencken. It's not an exact quote, but the gist of it is Mencken said that you know Puritanism is the haunting fear that someone somewhere is having a good time. I love a good time. <laughs> Uh, all kinds of good times. There's many different ones, some with a group of people, some with close friends, some with your family. Um, they're all good. They're great. They're part of the important texture of day-to-day life, and they're not to be looked down on or sneered at. And many of them are, are, are transcendent through the sublimity of them. But at the same time, there are many other things that are part of life that, that extend past just the moment. You, you alluded to them earlier uh, a minute ago. And, um, you know, as I, I write in the book that as you get older, bittersweet chocolate is better than sweet chocolate. You know, when you're a child, sweet is all you want. And when you're an adult, things that are bittersweet, that are a little more painful, that come with sacrifice, um, they're the things that I think we value most deeply often. There's a very interesting point to be raised here around age, I think, and wisdom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, there is a an element of this that Confucius talks about. So he says, uh, in the early stages of training, an aspiring Confucian gentleman needs to memorize entire shelves of archaic texts, learn the precise angle at which to bow, and learn the lengths of the steps with which he is to enter a room. His sitting mat must always be perfectly straight. All of this rigor and restraint, however, is ultimately aimed at producing a cultivated but nonetheless genuine form of spontaneity. Indeed, the process of training is not considered complete until the individual has passed completely beyond the need for thought or effort. One of the problems that we encounter is that when most people begin any sort of pursuit that are reflective and probably the sort of people that are listening to this podcast, they will rely on cognitive horsepower to get them through these challenges. They will have frameworks, they will have principles and so so on and so forth that they apply to these situations. Now, over time, what you realize is that your subconscious embodied experience, whatever it is that you want to call it, is able to aggregate all of your experiences in a much more effective way than rationally trying to go. So what got you here won't get you there. But because we use... Uh, like memetic evolution to work out well this in the past worked therefore i should continue to do it it's very difficult to let go of that and the the ruling that i'm thinking about here is that when you are younger relying on frameworks seems like a smarter idea because you don't have as much experience right what are you what are you drawing on and also another element to consider here is i always thought when I was younger, and I still do now, my, my ability to do sort of um, hyperbolic discounting or to, to basically just have such a small sphere of understanding around the tactics I'm using now are going to be the ones that I'll use forever. They're not. You periodize your life. You go through a period. Everyone that I know went through a period of being obsessed about productivity and, and having the note-taking external brain app, and they were Pomodoroing 25 minutes on and five minutes off. Getting and, things done. Yes. Yeah, they were David <laughs> Allening their way through the world. And then 
they transcend that after a while. But I remember when I was doing that, that this is going to be my pursuit for the rest of time. I'm going to be completely just dedicated to productivity. And then now I, I just have like a minimum viable system. I'm like, look, is, could it be better? Yeah. But is it enough? Yeah. And now I move on to the next thing and you aggregate through all of these different bits. My point being, in the beginning, relying on principles, you know, the stuff that you guys talk about on your show and learning the more rational, utilitarian foundations. This is how things get underpinned. And then allowing yourself to ameliorate that. How does it just get mixed in with the soup of everything else that I do? And the good shit sticks. The stuff that I like will stick about and the stuff that I don't use will just fade away. And that's fine. And I think it also gets onto what you said earlier on about relieving some of the pressure. It's like, look, you're going to let some stuff go. Maybe you're not going to be able to recall all of the different elements of David Allen's GTD method as effectively as you could 20 years ago, but it doesn't matter because you are now onto bigger and better things. And I think that that balance between young, procedural, old, uh, spontaneous wisdom embodied, whatever you want to call it, I think that that's a dynamic that increasingly I think people should be aware of. It's a great insight. Um, I think when I when I say to people, don't use cost-benefit analysis, or at least be aware of its shortcomings, which I talk about at length, people then say, well, what's the alternative, going with your gut? And I wouldn't suggest going with your gut generally in most situations, uh, although I give some examples in the book of where seemingly rational people looked like they went with their gut, uh, but I, I suggest they had other things going on there. But I do think when you talk to very successful people, uh, particularly in the financial and business world, you ask them how they make decisions, they will often say, at least I've heard it many, many times, oh, I just use my intuition, which is a form of going with your gut. It's just like, I don't like think about it and I, I, I see the path. And on the surface, that sounds like just going with your gut. It's just a wild guess. I try something. I just see what's uh, what I feel like. But it's really more than it's a lot more than that. It, it's, it's what you were talking about. And you said it very well that as you get older, you accumulate evidence that your self processes in ways you don't see rationally. Um, and you got to trust some of that. It's not your gut. It's the accumulated experience of, of living. And, you know, I always wonder, you know, these lists of. What I want my twenty-year-old. What would I wanted my twenty-year-old self to know? And I'm not sure my twenty-year-old self was. Well, I know my twenty-year-old self was not a good listener. Um, so I don't think my twenty-year-old self would have heard that advice much. And it's, I don't know if young people in general can hear wisdom from older people, uh, like you just passed on. Some can. It's a temperament issue. I think people vary in how their ability to to absorb lessons. But what you're really saying is that when you're younger, you're going to need to realize you're going to make decisions differently when you get older. And there's nothing wrong with that because you'll have different powers. It's pretty cool. It's a very big problem that we have that a lot of the people who, especially now in the world of podcasting and YouTube, the people that have a lot of status and or reach online are people who have been through a lot of situations that young people haven't. And young yeah. people are trying to model young behavior on old people's advice. Yeah, it's interesting. Doesn't work. Doesn't work. No. You can take a photo of the top of the mountain and say to people, look, here's what it looks like at the top. Uh, by the way, there's this hole on the right-hand side. You need to avoid that. And the ladder's a little bit rickety, so the fourth rung up, you've, you should avoid that one. And da -da 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 -da. <laughs> and people go, yeah, 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 that sounds great. And yet Taking notes the whole while. They yeah. still decide <laughs> to have to go up the mountain themselves in order to be able to see what's at the top of it. And this is part of i have a, an insight maybe that a good amount an embarrassingly large amount of the wisdom that we think is self-generated through our introspection and our self-work comes along for the ride as a byproduct of just getting older and that's like as someone that loves an agentic like sovereign experience terrifies me because i think oh god how much of the time that i'm spending now that being said i take pleasure from the the introspection and the work in any case so it's kind of a moot point but I think, some of it's some of it's a narrative fallacy, right? You're just you're just convincing yourself of something that just looks it's on the surface. It's uh, it's like the uh, you know my favorite example is the guy playing the video game, and he hasn't put any money in it yet. Doesn't realize that it's got an automatic version before you put the money in that you're doing. And in the case of uh, you know you're pushing the buttons for Space Invaders for those old enough to remember what it was, and you th you see things 
firing and you think ships, rocket ships of the enemy going down. You think I'm doing great, but you haven't even put the money in. It's, it's just an illusion. So some of that going on. What about having, well, I, I have to presume that having robust principles and, and hard rules that scale across multiple situations must be one of the solutions that people can have here. Not having to approach each individual challenge with the expected value calculator of this one, mm-hmm. something a firmer place for people to stand must be a good way to uh, expedite this. Yeah, so you know, I have some of those in the book, uh, and there's some nice, there's some thoughtful people on Twitter and in wisdom literature and elsewhere who have some of these rules. You know, one the one I focus on in a chapter is called privilege or principles. That a lot of times keeping your principles, keeping your values, living by them is going to be costly. And you're not going to get much pleasure from the idea that you stuck to your principles. You're just going to miss out on something you thought you could have done if you were a little less honest. And I use the example of returning a wallet where no one sees you finding it on the street. You find a wallet in the street. Wouldn't it be great if you could keep it and not feel guilty? But, you know, I suggest it might be a good thing to aspire to be a person who would feel guilty, even if you don't feel guilty now. And these kind of ideas of, you know, ethical principles, mostly I think they come up a lot at work and in situations where, you know, there's always a financial temptation to do certain things that are, you know, in your heart are wrong. Um, don't compromise. You know, economics suggests, oh, the bigger the gain, the more likely you are to sell all your principles. And I suggest, don't, no, just never sell. Much better rule. Have a rule. Don't go, well, in this case, it's probably worth it. Now, if your kid's life's at stake, steal the bread. Yes. Um, that's a different kind of principle then, besides honesty, is to keep your children alive. But in general, those conflicts don't happen. It's usually about your pleasure versus doing the right thing. You should do the right thing. You'll be you'll lead, you'll lead a better life, but not a better life. You're a fuller human being, uh, but you will have some pain. So might might not be the right thing. You see this online a lot in the online content creation world that there are people who will succumb to audience capture one piece of content at a time. Yeah, yeah. And the problem is when you sell your integrity, you can't buy it back. It is a one-way street. Good line, yeah. Yeah, it, it, so it, true. It only goes in one direction, and although you don't have the external accountability of the audience fact-checking you about whether you did give that wallet back or not, there is something. You know, whether it's the daemon, whether it's the subconscious, whether it's the whatever. Right? There's something that's keeping track. And I, I remember, so I was a club promoter for a long time. I ran nightclubs uh, in the UK, and. I I wasn't the most honest person. I wasn't stealing money. I wasn't doing anything like that. But I'd just compromise my own opinion to try and please other people. I wanted to be liked, so I would tell them what I thought they wanted to hear. Yeah. And there was this yeah. there was this ambient sort of trepidation around what, what how I would feel. And I think it's because I, I was always fearful that I would be found out for not being the person that I said I was. So there was ambient yeah. anxiety the whole time, just yeah. you know, infusing Background. whatever I did. Yeah. And on the other side of that now, uh, you know, maybe not being the same party guy or whatever that I was that wouldn't appease people in that same sort of way. First off, I found that authenticity is much more uh, seductive and attractive to people than whatever version of persona you think that they want to see because they yeah. can see through it. And secondly, your degree of self-love, self-respect, whatever you want to refer to it as, really should be prioritized above, above most other things. There are few things that I think should go above you said you know steal the bread if your child's hungry and, and dying yep cool there's not many there's not many situations that i think yeah. that should go above that yeah i, I yeah I, I agree with that i, I do th- i, I want to just say I, I think redemption is possible it, it's hard to get your integrity back but it is possible and i do think that a lot of people who are good at deceiving others or have to deal with that temptation of they can be in inauthentic and get away with it which um Seems like a blessing, but it's probably a curse. It's an extra degree of difficulty on their life. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. what about so? Obviously, one of the issues that we have here is that there are, these large decisions have an anxiety of uncertainty around them. Uh, how should people avoid being crushed under the pressure of these big decisions that they need to make? Well, I think it's helpful to start off by recognizing that as a human being, you have a strong desire for certainty that the uncertainty and the anxiety it produces is very normal. Um, and to be able to be aware of that as opposed to just being anxious is a huge step forward. Uh, I try to relieve some of the uncertainty by pointing out that it's inevitable. We talked about this earlier. 
you're making a leap into the dark. The fact that you don't know where you're leap where, where you're going to land is nothing to be embarrassed about or ashamed of, or um, and and you should think of it as a mistake. Um, I also talk about the virtues of settling, uh, the pressure we put on ourselves to buy the best wicking underwear, the best <laughs> fill in the blank using Being there. all the great these wire cutter recommendations with my Amazon thing. And I've got this other site that checks on whether Amazon recommendation, you know, the stars are real or whether they're done by a bot or the, you know, um, it's, it's okay. So you don't have to have the best one. It's not, there usually isn't a best one. There's the best one for you. There might be a best one for the average person. You're not the average person. Some, um, it fascinates me that, that we are anxious about those things. And I do think that, some self-awareness about that is goes partway toward reducing the um, the pain of it. What did you learn from Bill Belichick? I know that you looked at him. Yeah, so Bill Belichick's an interesting example. He's widely regarded as one of the greatest football coaches of all time. Uh, what I suggest is he's very aware of his own limitations. Uh, most important thing, one of the most important things, not the, but one of the most important things a, a coach or general manager does in football is pick players for from college who are gonna play for your team. Uh, Bill has been around for a long time. He's learned that that's really hard to do well. And it's interesting why it's hard to do well. There is hard data on every player. They know how fast they run, how much weight they can lift, um, how many yards they ran for, what competition, level of competition they played against. They have an immense amount of statistic, statistical information about these players. And it's not vaguely enough. <laughs> And one of the reasons it's not enough is that each player then comes into a specific situation and Belichick has puts a lot of pressure on his players to adapt to his system and to communicate with each other. And therefore, the per he can't really know how good that person is going to be until they're in the actual crucible Vampire of the game. Again. And Exactly. And so he's realized that his success ratio is small. So his best bet is just to have a large denominator pick a lot of players and some of them he'll, he will discover through the process of testing them in preseason, whether they're going to be good players or not. Problem is you only get one player per round. So how can you get more picks? And the answer is, well, you can trade the higher rated picks, the second, first or third round picks for multiple picks in the choices in the sixth and seventh and, and fourth rounds. And he does that quite often. And I, I don't know if this is true, by the way. I, I presume he does it more often than others, and I presume he does it. I, you know, it's just it's my impression as a very casual uh, fan of, of the Patriots, his team, uh, that he's often doing that. And what he is famous for, though, is finding really good players from later rounds, Tom Brady being the most famous example, um, and often players that weren't drafted. He has chosen a player who was not drafted, uh, meaning he signed them after the draft was over, selection process and they've made the team he's also famous for cutting people that he thought were really good that weren't um he doesn't go oh i'm gonna look stupid i wasted this high rank pick he goes they're not a good player <laughs> um so he's a fascinating example by the way he's in he was majored in economics at wesleyan and uh, i think he understands trade-offs really really well which is one of the things you learn as an economist and if you're a successful football coach i think you understand them also so there's a guy called Eddie Jones. He is England rugby's head coach, and it is the World Cup for Rugby 2023 coming up, so there is a good amount of pressure on him. He has coached Australia, Japan, and England, and in between that he went and he was a PE teacher of 13, 14, 15-year-old boys. So he has literally been from the lowest of the low to the elite in terms of rugby, and I had him on the show and got to have a breakfast with him while he was in Newcastle, which is where I am now. I got to have breakfast with him but about a year ago. And um, first off, I noticed that he paid a lot of attention, a bunch of other things. He asked me a ton of questions. And then I wanted to ask him about what was the selection criteria for his players? Because he travels around the country watching club games, Premier League club games of rugby. And he's maybe got three or four players on the pitch who he's assessing. Are these guys going to be right? And, and I was like, well, so what are you looking for? And uh, the answer that he gave was just nothing that I thought. So he said he arrives before, well before the game starts and what he's looking for has almost nothing to do with the ball handling skills, their speed, their strength, their power, any of that. What he looks at is what's their relationship like with the ground staff when they walk out onto the pitch? 
What's their relationship like with the other players when they're determining what drills to, to, to run before the game begins? Once the game begins, if they're winning, how does their body language change? If they're losing, how does their body language change? One of the key things that he looked at was how often are they looking to the coaches for what to do next and how often are they deciding themselves? He said that when he went to Japan, he spoke to the only successful Japanese team, which was the female volleyball team. Uh, Japan wasn't having a good period with regards to the Olympics. And he went and spoke to the coach who'd been relatively new. And he said, what, what did you do? You, some successful criteria here. In volleyball, I didn't know this. In volleyball, the coach is very close to the edge of the court. And that means that the players can interact with the coach pretty quickly. I guess similar to football, except for the fact that the pitch is, you know, one tenth of the size or one fiftieth of the size. So he's able to speak to them and the coach immediately cut any player that asked him for advice. Now that seems like a perhaps a <laughs> bit more of a brutal, hard and fast rule. Yes. But the principle I think came through that Eddie says at the absolute elite of sport, you want players that are self-sufficient. You want players who are not going to have their internal state too affected by the um, current position of the game, because that means they're going to be down when you're down and up when you're up. And there's this flip-flopping around. And he wanted to see how they interacted with the training staff, with the ground staff, with the coaches, with the physios, with, with the other players. I just thought that that was again, Beautiful. again similar to to Bill. Yeah. You know, he's he's looking for the intangibles because yeah. What what uh, is there a term for this vampire problem? The unknown unknowns and how you need to Bayesianly update and you can't predict that updating. Is there is there a term for that? I think it's the term is uh, the unknown unknowns and the Bayesian update. No, I don't think there's a term. Yeah, you know what I mean. <laughs> there should be one. You should, the vampire. Yeah, we can good. refer to it as the vampire problem for now. Well, look. Russ Roberts, ladies and gentlemen. Russ, this has been great. Uh, I really, really appreciate I appreciate your artful form of uh, looking at economics through the uh, transcended sage that you've obviously now managed to, <laughs> to, to get yourself close to. If people want to check out the stuff that you do online, where should they go? I, I'm on uh, Twitter as EconTalker. Uh, they can go to econtalk.org to see find my podcast or any place where podcasts are found. And I archive all my work at russroberts.info. Amazing. Russ, I appreciate you. Thank you. It's a lot of fun, Chris. Talk to you soon.